welcome to Tunnel Vision episode 36. I'm really excited tonight. We have an amazing, amazing guest, um, usually from Finland, but now you're, you're based in the, the Valley for the moment, Yuri Engstrom. Yuri, welcome to Tunnel Vision. Thanks. It's awesome to be on. We're psyched to have you. So, so you're in the you're in San Francisco with Kevin Marks, right? Yeah, I'm here for uh, actually just a short visit because of a couple conferences that have been happening this week, TechRank Disrupt, as well as Giga uh, Ohm's Mobilize conference, which was just going on today. I'm actually coming straight directly from there. Uh, but I am formally sort of between New York and Helsinki, Finland. Oh, so the New York move has started to happen. Yep, that's right. I've founded my new startup there. All right. Well, I look forward to seeing you there next time I'm in New York. Um, Yuri, so, so Deb, you're, you're with us tonight. Also, you're in, in San Francisco or the Valley? I am in San Francisco on the opposite side of town looking at Yuri and Kevin probably in the fog <laughs> across, the, across the city. And it's just been an incredible week of uh, relevant events to Tumble Vision. There's just tons of news. But even if there wasn't, there's so much to talk about with Yuri. Yuri um, is the founder of Jaiku, which was uh, sold to Google. Sort of, is it fair to say, really kind of ran social for Google for some time. And is a former sociologist. Has written some really interesting stuff about social object theories that relates to social networks. So there's just, and it's working on on, a, on some interesting ideas in, in some new space. So there's just lots to talk about with you. Um, never mentioned, were you at TechCrunch Disrupt this week? Is that one of the conferences you were here for? That's right, yeah. It was happening Monday to Wednesday, so just closed yesterday. Right, yes. and uh, which just lit up Twitter pretty heavily, and perhaps it was designed really just to do that uh, with sort of gossip of the, it was, a, it was a heavily, it's a man gossip kind of week with accusations, either leaked or fake leaked that a bunch of angels were colluding to, to set prices and sort of tiffs between Dave McClure and Ron Conway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, and then TechCrunch itself being acquired by AOL and Jason Calacanis deciding to tip with Mike Arrington some more. Um, over that, so that's just sort of like gossipy stuff of the week. But it, it's interesting in, in the context of Tumble Vision in the sense that we have a sort of immediate water cooler effect of those things, and in a way, those things become, um, I think, longer lived than if they were written out on a on a you know in pure blogging era or even before that print era. Would you say? I mean, that those kinds of things matter more as. Um, because their social object value all of a sudden becomes really important, even more than whether or not we care that AOL decided to buy a startup that I have no idea how the hell it's going to do anything with other than kill. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Kevin or Yuri, take it. What do you think? Um, I think TechCrunch and AOL make some sense given where AOL is going. Because AOL is trying to be this new... Um, big head and long tail source of information, and TechCrunch fits in with that. We'll see how well that works out, but okay. It's a very tough—it's a very tough balance, I think, to have. Uh, this gonna, well, you, you, you know AOL of old, yes. There's going to yes. be a culture clash. Well, I mean, I think it's been a, a 
you know, great closure for Mike Arrington. Obviously, you know, he's kind of worked his butt off for the last five years, and, and you know, I kind of applaud that side of the situation. But obviously, you know, the question is still open. There's been a lot of, I think, you know, that's, this is what companies do when, when, when they get acquired. This, there's a bunch of PR saying, you know, this is this is all good. It's it's continuity. It's uh, you know, we're not going away. We're we're it's just you know, improving our capabilities to deliver better better product and that's exactly what we've heard from TechCrunch but you know uh, I think it's fairly clear that you know uh, being part of AOL does you know put them in a completely different spectrum of the could one call it the political you know constellation of you know blogs out there they're simply not independent anymore. And what are the odds you know yourself as a pretty independent entrepreneur who got acquired by a huge company like Google which is even less typically corporate Google is than AOL, and how in a, with a content startup like TechCrunch, which is heavily based on Mike Arrington's behavior personally, how is it going to function? Because they're not just acquiring a bunch of code they can run without him. They're acquiring a content reputation that works based on how he works, and what are the odds of him working there or doing anything or being able to operate? I don't know, Kevin. Do you have inside information? Huh. <laughs> Not really. Um, apart from apart from that post by Mike Arrington saying this is the longest meeting I've ever had in my history at TechCrunch. Um, about his first meeting with AOL. Kevin, have we lost yeah. you? No, no, I'm here. Okay, we're getting a huge echo getting on. A huge you. echo again. You can try to, I don't know, pull out, pull out and push back in. Kevin and you are having a very, I, I know, we're audio only now, but are having a very intimate, two, two boys, one mic experience. No, 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 we got two different mics. We're across the room, and it's just the problem, it's the same room. Yeah. Well, so, I, um, I, I like to have the idea that you are anyway. <laughs> Kevin's really enjoying, she's really enjoying her vision. Let her have it. Okay, boys? All right? All right? Let her, right. you know. This is tumble vision, everyone. That's, yeah. I, it's, it's all so, about closeness. It's all about the strong ties, Yuri. So, so, so um, I mean, a lot of how TechCrunch has grown, it's not a particularly heavily tumbled site. There is a lot of um, commenting on the on that blog for certain and its live events have become very important to it um as is sort of a lot of how we've had dave mcclure on the show and a lot of what was going on this week was talking about him and him getting people together which has been a lot of like what percentage of the value of dave mcclure is that he gets people together what percentage of the value say the question again heather i'm asking a mcclure question about mcclure except i'm not saying you know motherfucker in it but we could just throw that in there for for him (laughs) Now what, I understand you. Okay. What percent? I, I'm glad that I'm personally responsible, by the way, for our iTunes explicit label. Uh, <laughs> what is the percentage of Dave McClure's value? What percentage of his value as a as a player in the Valley is really just based on on him getting people together, which he's very good at? I think a tremendous amount, actually. Um, so the, here, the thing that what we're seeing right now is is I think this whole. Uh, sort of angel slash super angel uh, 
phenomenon that we're, we're observing here is, is really what it's about is, is actually, um, you know, about recognizing something that's always been there, which is that, you know, the best investors are actually the best tumblers. They're the people who are the connectors uh, who are able to, you know, essentially add value, not just by, you know, in injecting a, you know, a pot of cash into a company, but actually by, you know, making the right social connections that actually are what one could argue, you know, oftentimes are a decisive factor. And, you know, when you have two companies with an equal or semi-equal product that, you know, matter, make the difference on which, which one of them actually ends up succeeding. And that has always been, you know, the hallmark of the best investors. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think it, it's also one of the one of the things that people do really well. <laughs> Machines don't do so well. Just kind of the basis of our of our interest in tumble vision. So, um, you know, Heather, on that note, ahead. I was I was wondering if the analogy of since we started with sort of the AOL versus TechCrunch, and bear bear with me on this analogy. You know, you could argue, though I know VCs, and I have one in my family, would uh, argue with me that you know AOL is to TechCrunch as you know, old-style venture capitalists are to the new angels a la McClure. One is more eco or first-round capital or others. One is very much um, in the trenches, more ecosystem-driven. You could argue that long tail of publishing is that and builds a lot on that. Although TechCrunch doesn't do a lot of tumbling, maybe you might say at the moment, or connecting, um, but it, 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 that's how it got its start, and it's, you know, it's events at, at uh, Arrington's house, et cetera, in the Valley. And, you know, we could, we could question whether it's an inevitability that when organizations get older or larger, um, do they inherently stop doing those ecosystem kinds of connecting, tumbling, and engaging that we ask them, that, you know, that, that is sort of the successful formula today that we think is a successful formula. And because we try to do it in every episode because I'm sure people listen to just this one and not all of them necessarily. Deb, can you give the two-sentence version of tumbling? Sure. I was about to ask you to do it. Um, Kevin, Heather, and I have a belief that, you know, tumbling, it, it, the derivation is it comes from a Yiddish word called tum, tum, tumbler or t is a person is a tumbler or to tumble is the verb and it means to cat technically it means to catalyze others to action and it, it's it's more sort of um, everyday use refers to the tumblers in the sort of Borschbelt comedian of uh, world of the east coast where you had a comedian host MC who stood in front of a room and connected the room to each other. So they didn't only perform in an old-style sense of one-to-many, but they actually engaged everyone in the room, in the audience, with each other, with themselves on stage, to create um, a really um, exciting, for want of a better word, social space. And so we, on a weekly basis, um, investigate sort of the impact of and the need for this more human form of connection in culture, business, and tech, whether it's looking at it from a purely technology standpoint about how interfaces could engage that better or at events or live spaces, um, which Heather does a lot at her shows or what I tend to do a lot of in business. So we like to have guests on our show and people to talk about that. And so and a lot of our work, I would say, comes out of a lot of stuff that, that Yuri has talked about around social objects. So, Yuri, maybe you want to do a refresher of, of so, your so, post. Yeah, so Yuri wrote a, some, a post that, that I think Todd Barnard here in the chat room is correctly called really seminal for the, for the web world about social objects as, um, as a central organizing principle for social networks. 
Um, is there, is, is this something that still comes up for you very often, um, Yuri? Maybe you want to give people just like a very short, your elevator sure. pitch version of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's still the most um, referred to post on my blog. Uh, has been since 2005. Originally, I was kind of dumped out at about, wow, like, oh my God, I didn't realize this hit a nerve. Um, and since then, I think it's been, it's become more and more clear why that's the case. It's a social object, really. What it refers to is, is this basic, um, essentially a, a misconception in sort of our classic notion of a social network that is actually formed by a genre of uh, you know, social theory, which, which kind of which starts from the assumption that uh, the social network is uh, a network of individuals connected together by some kind of relationships. It's like the basic idea. You, know, you get this image of um, nodes that are people <coughs> connected together by lines that represent relationships between them, and that's supposed to be a social network. However, in reality, um, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, you know other, another genre of, of uh, theorizing that sort of, I think, demonstrates a much more useful um, way of looking at the same phenomenon, which states that, in fact, people are always never connected together without some kind of connecting object, which is actually the reason why those particular people interact and not just some random set of people. Um, for instance, like in, in this case, you know, here the social object arguably connecting us together is the tunnel vision show, you know, which, which is a construct that you guys have created just in order to, you know, bring together a particular group of people. That's us, you know, talk about these issues. Um, so, and, and now these social objects, what's happening in the social web is you can think about any service basically that involves any sort of a social aspect to it. It's pretty much every service online nowadays. And, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is, well, if, if you can't tell what the social object on that site is within, you know, the blink of an eye, chances are that that service is in trouble because, you know, what you really you look at the best services out there. You look at services like Twi like Twitter, and it's the tweets. You look at Flickr, it's the photo. Um, and what these services managed to do is Flickr was arguably the first service to successfully turn photographs into online social objects. Similarly, YouTube was the first one to really do it well for videos. Um, you know, Twitter arguably kind of, you know, um, came out on top in, in the competition for turning these short, essentially text messages, you know, SMS messages into social objects online. So, so whenever I do investing nowadays a little bit on the side, I do angel investing. And, and one of the rules that I have is, you know, whenever I, I see that a company, a new startup is able to, you know, kind of create a new uh, type of social object. Um, out of some pre-existing thing that hasn't yet been successfully transformed into an online object around which people can associate, that's usually when we see a big win, uh, you know, both financially as well as in terms of just, you know, uh, kind of value, use value for users. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's my sense, and you're a sociology PhD, that, that people turn anything into a social object pretty much. That it's our that it's our natural human tendency to do that with stuff. Well, the hard part is turning. Like, let's take photos for example. Steve Steve Jobs used to call it the chain of pain, which was, uh, you know, you'd snap a photo with your digital camera in the '90s, and you'd have to plug it into your computer by USB, then you transfer the photos over to your hard drive, and then you'd have to figure out some way of downloading software that let you possibly upload it to the web. Um, and this was, you know, a complicated process, but when 
when that became easy enough to do with camera phones, you know, where you could just snap a picture and boom, you know, you could send it online wirelessly. That's really when we saw, you know, services like Clicker. Soon after that, you know, services like Facebook really start to, you know, thrive uh, through photo sharing. So it's always a, pe- a technical question also. is like when uh, do we get the means to actually do it in a use- usable way. You know, it's, it's not enough, enough to just have the idea. You also need an implementation that really works. So the thing, the thing about the way tech worlds work is when it, you still have the chain of pain, then nerds will turn the chain of pain into a social object for each other. And they'll socialize around how, how to do the thing that isn't that easy. That's, that's what I found. And to me, that's one of the reasons, and I'm interested in, in, in your thoughts so you're having you know, sold Jaiku to Google and tried to work with Google social stuff inside. Isn't it possible that because a technical process can be a social object for, for, for hardcore geeks, they can um, not see how they're getting in the way of making something that's more content-driven or humanly-driven uh, an available social object for more people? Well, I think you know, understanding social dynamics is hard. It's its own, it's its own science and art, really. Um, and it's totally different from understanding technology. Um, so social objects are usually really simple things, you know, a tweet, a photo, a video, um, you know, a check-in. Uh, these are all examples of social objects that are usually really easy to understand, and they co- correspond to some real-world behavior that we're used to doing already prior to the Internet. You know. um, now, I think the problem that we see in very engineering-driven companies, sort of, um, you know, web, I don't know, can you say web 1.0 companies, um, right. is, is that people, you know, it's, it's a different philosophy if you approach technology from the classic idea of human-computer interaction where it's, you, know, you have one person and one, one machine and then you kind of figure out things. You know, that's when you come up with solutions like, like the Google search, uh, essentially. You, know, you type in a keyword and, you know, computer you know, spawns back results. Um, there's no social element involved in that. So um, just to kind of carry on with that, you know, it's like I think one of the interesting thought exercises for anybody who's out there, you know, thinking about doing a startup, for instance, is to, you know, um, think about this, what are the social objects. Like I think, um, you know, a friend of mine, Dennis Crowley, so Dennis has been working on the idea of location for a long time. Um, but Dennis and, is one of the founders of Foursquare. That's right. So Dennis obviously founded Foursquare. And, um, and before that dodgeball, yeah. That is right. So, so before Foursquare, then which was also picked up by Google, right? That's right. Yep. Um, more, more of a fumble pass, but yeah. <laughs> fumble. Did you say a fumble pass? Is that the Brit? Yes. Did you call it a fumble That's, pass? Yes, wow. I'm making I'm making American sports analogies. That's how native I am now. Well, actually, not to be the jock of the group, but a fumble <laughs> pass are sort of opposite things. Not to be a nerdy jock. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Keep if, if going. Saying, Sorry. So, De- so, so Dennis has been working on. Um, I dropped catch at silly middle, right? On his mobile and his mobile applications, and for Foursquare, and, and Kevin was asking, "What's the social object for Foursquare?" The social object for Foursquare is, is checking, and and the example here is you know it's like the innovation happens when somebody like Dennis comes along, 
Um, and in his case, you know, he had uh, thought about this problem for a long time and done many experiments, you know, for 10 years. Um, uh, I remember meeting Dennis around 2000 for the first time, I believe. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, uh, and we were already thinking about this stuff back then. I was working with, you know, ways of doing, using RFID to do check-ins in the spaces, and he was interested in doing the same over SMS. And we sort of started pinging off ideas, you know, off of each other. And it took almost a decade for the social object to be conceptualized as a check-in, mm-hmm. if you see what I'm saying. Like there's a, like a decade-long process of experimentation prior to the, you know, Foursquare actually emerging and growing into what it is today. Um, so it just goes to, goes to point out that, you know, the, the simplest of things, um, you know, sometimes take a long time to actually, you know, for us to get it, like how to do this technically in the right way. And, and why do you think it took a decade for the check-in to become a social object and, um, and how much of that was Dennis and how much of that was something else? Well, it's always, innovation always happens when, um, you know, elements from unrelated fields are brought together and mixed to produce a novelty, a new result that somehow just works. Um, and in the case of Foursquare, I think what happened was, um, first of all, we had uh, location-based technology. Like, actually, pos- it was actually possible to just pick up somebody's GPS location on an iPhone. Um, that became sort of like a trivial thing to do, which, you know, initially wasn't possible. Like, back in the days of Dodgeball, that just wasn't possible, which, you know, made a Dodgeball a much less usable service. Now, at the same time, um, what we also had was, <clears throat> you know, things like a touchscreen, uh, you know, and just like the ability for people to actually carry their phones to all kinds of places without losing the network. So there's a lot of this stuff that was just wasn't in place before, you know, that actually took 10 years to build before it became feasible to build something like this on scale. And now at the same time, then, you know, we've come a long way in the last, you know, just five to six years, you know, from since things like Flickr were founded, then, you know, knowing how to build social services that works, you know, kind of, you know, fine-tuning the dynamics. Um, things like, you know, making it easy to bootstrap a social network, you know, through things like Facebook Connect and, you know, all these other means, you know, have just recently become available. So, you know, that's why you're seeing the kind of phenomenal growth that you now see with Foursquare. You know, it's super easy to use. It's super easy to, you know, bootstrap a social network. And it goes with you everywhere. Right. So, but... But how much do you think people really understand the social dynamics or focus on social dynamics when they're creating social uh, startups? Um, well, I personally do. Like, you know, that's all I pretty much focus on. Um, so one of the things that is a good premise to start from, um, I find, is like, um, you know, in my, like, whatever, uh, both my parents are also academics, so since... Since pretty much I knew how to talk, you know, I've been hearing uh, conversations about, you know, social dynamics and social theory, things like conversation analysis, uh, you know, different genres of sociology and so on. And basically you can gel that all down to, um, you you can nail it by saying, well, in the end, you know, people want to get laid. 
could take a thing like that. And they say, well, what's a good way to get laid? Well, one of the good things, good ways to get laid is um, to appear interesting to other people, right? Actually, everybody wants, even the people who don't want to get laid, want to appear interesting to others. Um, and again, one of the best ways to appear interesting is to have some kind of secrets or valuable knowledge that the other people don't have. <clears throat> and then if you are able to, you know, at the right time, tell somebody else, you know, share that with someone, you know, they start to respect you, you get their attention. Um, and this is kind of like a, a good way. So, for instance, like right now I'm working on a startup um, that is about doing real-time recommendations between people. Um, so taking a concept like this and saying, well, gosh, you know, if I can as easily now as I can, uh, you know, check in on Foursquare, um, announce that I'm about to do something like such as go out, but I don't right. yet know where to go, then having Kevin be able to get that information immediately and as easily reply to me with some kind of a good suggestion that I may not know about, you know, the, you know Blue Bottle Coffee is right around the corner and, and, you know, we should actually meet up there in, in a half an hour. Now, that's valuable information to me, and that's what makes Kevin more interesting to me because he's just recommended a new cafe that actually turns out to be really great. And then enable me to put some kind of feedback to Kevin saying, thanks, that was a great suggestion. You know what I like about this, Deb Yuri? What I love about that is, and I've started to see a number of startups across the spectrum around there, and we're, I, feel, I would love to get your thoughts on, we're sort of at this moment where, let's say for the last, what, two to four years or so, I, you know, I like to view it as I've now become smarter about you, the proverbial you online. You're stuck in an airport. You're just ate breakfast. You have an opinion on something. I don't mean to, it to sound pedantic. But it, we, we haven't yet become smarter about you and me together as a connected network, really. You know, more useful and helpful. So what's, what's, what's nice about that is that the 10 years it might have took to get the concept of a check-in or even using the social web, we're now taking that to a layer of making it smarter. Right, um, making our network smarter about each other. Sure, do you see that? Do you see that happening in a lot of places? Like, like, let's. What's the next level kind of thing? Signal well, versus I, noise. I, I see the two things happen. One, um, I think, you know, that I'm sorry to say this, but things like uh, the Yelps of of the world, which sort of represented the kind of um, hallmark Web 2.0 UGC user-generated content communities, yes. uh, which is essentially asynchronous. Uh, we, you know, we go and we post a review about uh, Blue Ball Coffee, and then we, it kind of sits there and we forget about it. Another is benefit, at least the, the classic Wikipedia. Now, uh, what I think is happening with the mobilization that we just started talking about with, uh, and with real time, and with location information being always at hand, is that um, we're actually starting to see new services, Foursquare-like services, um, that operate much more in real time um, between people. So it turns out that, you know, me posting that, you know, incentive that I am about to head out for some coffee, but I haven't yet decided where I'm going, I'm just, you know, noting that this is going to happen in the next 30 minutes, now opens up a window for anybody in my network to jump in with a suggestion, which could be, oh, let's go together, or, hey, there's this new coffee shop that just opened up that you should check out. Even though I'm in New York and you're in San Francisco, I can still give you this valuable snippet of information, even if I can't join you. So there's multiple kinds of dynamics that can happen, you know, if we create a platform just just makes that possible in real time using things like, for instance, push messaging, using something like Apple's push notification or something. 
So mm-hmm. I'm really interested in that. Where we see, where, where I think we're going to see is these new kinds of mobile services actually disrupting uh, what have now become the kind of, you know, the standard uh, out there, which are these kind of relatively static user-generated websites that are just filled with information and still operate on a classic search, you know, and discover model. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. It- how do we, how do, you know, are you running into an issue around how do you ensure that that is actually useful and timely as opposed to annoying? You know, that, that sort of, I'll give the example of Aardvark as sort of a sort of real-time, um, you know, uh, answer questions from people in your network um, uh, concept startup. And, you know, how, how do you balance that um, the, you know, lots of people asking me all these questions all at once to finding that right person. How does the network get smarter? Yeah, our is a great well, example. You want to tell that? Maybe, maybe give a quick explanation of Aardvark and what you're talking about. So Aardvark um, was a service recently acquired by Google, which um, is basically a question and answer service that attempts to operate in, in real time. Um, by, you know, you can essentially ask Aardvark anything. Um, you can do this process over your instant messenger. And you just post a question. And Aardvark uses its, its algorithmical magic to route the question to the expert uh, wherever that expert may happen to be. They could be in, you know, another, on another continent um, who then, you know, gets pinged with your question and and gets the opportunity to reply to that question with an answer. Um, And the idea here is this way you may have an extremely specific question about some obscure problem uh, where, you know, there's only a couple people in the world who know the answer to, but they can immediately respond to you using our work. And it's, you know, it's an amazing concept. Uh, The challenge with our work, however, is that um, in my experience, you know, I've been, you know, attempting to use our work and, uh, Artwork has noted, for instance, that since I worked at Google, um, I am probably an expert in all Google-related questions. So I get questions such as, you know, what is the average salary of a Google engineer in Hyderabad in India? <laughs> Which, how does that <laughs> enough of that? Exactly. So it's not working as, as, as much like a charm as a kid. And what I'm, I'm more interested in, frankly, is... is um, you know, connections, actually, actually, so what I believe, uh, and what, I, what, what we saw already in, in Jaiku, which was the prior company I did um, that was also sold to Google and promptly kind of abandoned, um, was, well, in fact, these 140-character 140 microblog posts, these tweets, these Jaikus, whatever we want to call them, <clears throat> what they really are uh, are just excuses to open conversations, and, um, for instance, in Jaiku, we found that the best, kind of most um, valuable way of structuring the system, we did a lot of, you know, testing around this, was to limit the conversation opening, that is the first post, to 140 characters, but then allow people to reply with long replies. That's interesting. Yeah. Because that way, you know, you actually um, don't, spam people with very long and lengthy things, you know, you can kind of, you know, you're forced to articulate your point. And then if it sounds interesting, then you can always kind of click to see the actual thread. And oftentimes you can't really reply with just 140 
characters. And at that point, everybody's already kind of sucked into the conversation. Um, so you, you want more space to talk about it. And this is just a basic example of what I, what I think would, I don't know if you guys agree, is this tumbling? To me, it is. It's, it's a way of structuring things for tumbling. Yeah, I mean, it, to, to us, the focus on tumbling is really about the human, the piece that, that people do in connecting others and maybe eventually, hopefully, getting systems smarter to make the connections happen better. But usually it's a person making sure the conversation continues and those sort of, the, the kind of reading of social dynamics that we do um, and, and consciously building that. And, and you know, I think... Um, platforms can get smarter and smarter at supporting them, but I have to tell you, you, you know more social startup developers than I've met, but you are by far the most focused on social dynamics of every single one that I've met. Well, I think it's just because I wasn't trained as an engineer. That's all I got. <laughs> and and there and that is our that is our point exactly. <laughs> right. We need we need more sociologists and ethnographers in um you know in designing these tools and perhaps preside, per, designing better tools for those who are natural tumblers, which Heather, Heaven, and myself are those who are the human connectors. Uh, but uh, you're, you're saying some very sophisticated stuff, Yuri, about what's emerging when, around what's location-based, when we had photos, and, you know, startups happening around when somebody becomes able to, you'll be able to do it easily, and having a mix of these skills together is important. I think you do need to have still this kind of technological understanding you're talking about to really, um, you know, take advantage of what's, what's going on. I mean, Kevin, you've been around the startup scene a long time. Um, what are some of the things you've wanted to know um, from Yuri about? I mean, he's he's really. I feel like we only have so much time with uh, with you, and I want to take advantage of it. I mean, you both work together at Google, so things you want to know from uh, from Yuri about, um, or you want to to elucidate publicly about some of the Google social issues could be interesting, or some of these questions about building social startups um, and his take and things you think. That, that you that we wish he could tell more technologists or we could get out there well i think i mean that that's it yuri was like the accidental sociologist at google they they hired him without realizing that's what he was and he was pretty much the only one there and i'd love to hear about some of the <laughs> some of some of what you can say about the conversations you had there trying to explain this to them uh. that would be interesting actually Kevin, you were there. <laughs> I know I was there. <laughs> That's fine. Why don't you tell the other people a little? So we weren't there. So when I, I mean, we weren't there. Google is about to launch Google Meet, right? And the larger world probably expects it to be a Facebook challenger, especially in light of uh, God. I mean, we haven't gotten into it yet, but Facebook right. announcing some kind of relationship with Skype, which makes me a little bit nervous. A little bit nervous. Should I be nervous, Yuri? I don't know. Or is that just the Jew in me? <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't know. Let's think. There, there are two. I think there are two questions here. One was about right. Facebook. The other one was about Google. Um, right. So um, obviously, I have no idea what what Google is doing in the future. Um, I can I can note that um, initially, you know, uh, you know, for the couple of years I was at Google, um, kind of what we saw happen was. Um, you know, um, kind of Google kind of woke up to this, to the social web, essentially. And um, the way uh, the work kind of was started at Google was um, 
you know, in like let's create like let's turn Google into a player in the social web. Right. And and, and so uh, a number of kind of initiatives were started, and I was you know product managing some of those uh, things like Google profiles, you know, because for instance. Uh, there was a lot of talk about like building a Google social network, and one of the things we were missing was a way to uh, point at people. There was no, there were no URLs for people on Google, so we needed profile pages. You know, just to kind of to you need a nodes in order to have a network, right? Um, uh, and so a bunch of these initiatives were started, and what happened was that they became kind of shoehorned into features of existing Google services. So. This uh, notion of a news feed slash activity stream became Google Buzz that's kind of uh, pocketed into a a feature, like a side feature of Gmail. Um, The mobile version um, became known, like the early iteration of it became known as Google Latitude that became a feature of Google Mobile Maps, you know, see your friends on a map. Um, Google Profiles themselves became kind of like a feature of Google Search. Actually, so so it became fragmented. There was no coherent, single, unified user experience. Some, nothing similar to a Facebook, where you know you log into like a new social destination, where everything is sort of presented. And, to you. and why 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 did was there no hey let's make the user experience unified? Um, well, frankly, um, I think that was largely an artifact of. Google's own organization. Google's famously decentralized, um, and there are uh. a lot of existing powerful, um, you know, product managers or people, you know, engineers as, as well, perhaps even more so, who, you know, have run existing products and, and have a say about things. Um, and at that point, um, you know, Google did not have a powerful social social czar. You know, someone um, similar to you know, neither Larry nor Sergey, uh, perhaps represented. You know, they weren't Mark Zuckerberg, right? They were Larry and Sergey. Um, so, you know, kind of so this whole idea of the social web was perhaps a little bit new to them. Um, and so, it's, you know, I think that's well, that's largely why we saw happen what happened. And I know that Google's, you know, one of the things Google was very good at is rapidly iterating and learning and, and right. chasing itself. Um, this is what we see constantly happen in the Google search algorithm. You know, obviously, famously, Google was constantly running number of experiments with every single search that, you know, a user does on Google of the search algorithm is constantly changing and updating itself. And in the same way, I think what we're going to see, or I'm hoping, is, you know, that what we now have in Google Buzz, in Google Latitude, in the Google Profiles products. Google Wave, what was in Google Wave? Right, that was another attempt that, you know, that Google scrapped. Um, And, you know, whatever comes next is hopefully you know, a more, a stronger iteration of it, because I believe personally still very strongly that we need uh, you know, more other strong, large players. Oh, we, we, like, we need, absolutely we do. I mean, that's part of my, our, our wondering about Facebook and Skype connecting. Oh, then Facebook will have to deal with some of the sound issues we had earlier. Okay, <laughs> 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 since it is. I'll be like, hi, I'm talking to everyone. I can sort of hear them. They're kind of echoey. I mean, do you... What, what do you think about that partnership? I mean, I agree with you. We obviously need more. We want Google to be better. We want everyone to be better. But you make kind of, I'd say two points based on what you just said are interesting to me. One is that Google's strength is in its decentralization, but that's also made this sort of unified social user experience very difficult. Apple and Facebook are not so decentralized, and they have this very centralized user experience, but they also tend to be much um, to upset people socially more often. 
for different reasons, not because the user experience isn't as great, but because uh, their privacy issues are what are perceived as censorship issues. So I guess, um, you know, what do you, th one, what do you think will come of a connection between Facebook and Skype? Will that be able to work within the sort of more centralized approach Facebook takes? And, and secondarily, um, what do you think, um, how do you think Google will be able, or will they be able to make a more centralized user experience? Then do you think all the new social startups need to focus on a kind of central user experience? I'm giving you too many questions. I gave you three. So you can yeah. pick the one answer. Sorry. You just, you just prompted so many emotions. Well, I don't, I don't personally, I'm not super excited about like, I don't know, like intellectually, I don't find the Facebook Skype deal stimulating. It's like, right. what is that? What, would, okay. what could that be? Like uh, Skype, you know, Skype over Facebook, you know, Facebook, I initiate a Skype call from Facebook, like, gee, you know, you know, that's not really, doesn't sound very innovative. Like, it's great if there's something there that I don't see, but typically these kinds of mergers, what they really end up doing is just kind of, um, actually, uh, oftentimes, blotching the good parts of an existing independent service. So, um, well, I, do you want to tell me, what, what's, what's your take on it? Well, my... my my take is that there is a natural connection between the sort of social connection, social network and phone and telephony and, and the phone call because a, a call is another kind of social object. Um, an address book, a list of people you call, a history of that is also a, a sort of useful record of that stuff. Um, so I can see why Facebook will be interested in that. And we're also starting to see that all the phones, the new phones are starting to integrate Facebook as well as other directories in there so that you can actually have... Um, as well as the phone number, their last status update, things like that brought into the phone. So you can look at it and go, oh, maybe I shouldn't make a phone call to Yuri at the moment. He's, a, he's on Tunnel Vision. Um, I'll send him an email instead. So uh, we're starting to see that the, these different, um, what have been different sets of information about people being able to be merged together um, so that you can actually make, make those social calculuses much more easy than we used to be able to. Um, and I can, I can see, you know, I, I'm, I'm less excited about Skype and Facebook getting together because it's like two closed systems, you know, doing a dance rather than actually working out a way to interoperate that doesn't involve them, like, signing a biz dev agreement. But that's, uh, it, this stuff is starting to become possible for us to um, cross these, these different kinds of interactions through the person rather than trying to do them through the machine. Okay, so there's actually a point there that I agree with Kevin definitely, which is the mobile aspect, um, which I don't think anyone has yet gotten right. Like uh, Android hasn't gotten it right. You know, Apple hasn't gotten it right. Uh, um, you mean Nokia you mean the mobile it. aspect of social? Yeah, just you know the the classic. You know what we started off in Jaiku was a, a what we called a live address book. You know, on your phone. Uh, we were doing it on Nokia phones at the time, but you know, kind of what Kevin was talking about here was just like. Right. You know, being able to have constant, you know, presence information about your, you know, your friends. You know, you still, you open up, I've got an iPhone here, you know, and I switch to open up the, the, you know, my address book, which is, you know, basically my real social network. It's the people I actually care about and, and, and talk to often. And, you know, I don't see any information about what they're up to right now, although that information exists in the cloud. So this is super powerful, and, and that part I, I do agree with. Like, but frankly, I don't know if we... If Facebook necessarily needs Skype for that, I would think that it's just a very simple, also customer acquisition tool, right? I mean, 
people, I know I've started to use chat on Facebook because it gives me presence information. It's one of the useful things that I find Facebook does do. Um, and I could just see that just, just more people just merging, you know, this giant I am client. But, um, but I don't know that any of that takes advantage of sort of an element of tumbling. And I'm interested in your thoughts about this on mobile as well as with these larger players, Yuri. How many of them are thinking about, if any of them, because they don't seem to me to, to think this way, about the roles of people who would naturally tumble and trying to design around an assumption that people will go out and gather people around an experience? I mean, their social object may also be my post. Uh, and not just my post, but my activity to pull people in around that post, because that post, say, is about someone who just killed themselves right now. We've had a lot of that, unfortunately, online this week. Um, so the, the, the social organizing is because I'm connecting people around something or an issue that matters to me and now is also mattering to you. And is that an assumption in the design or is that just kind of writing it on top of what we've got? Well, I think what um, the essence of that question to me is... is um, it's a kind way of you to try to essentialize my... <laughs> overly worried. Well, look. Yuri, you need, you need to understand that as, that as Jews, we, we, we hide questions in very long statements. <laughs> if, anyone ever, if anyone Jewish ever says to you, I have a question, what they really mean is I have a statement. I'm just going to pose it as a question so that, you know, it's socially acceptable. <laughs> oh, I just apologize to everybody. <laughs> I do it all the time. We all do it. Totally it's nailed. Been- <laughs> I, I think you guys have me on string. I'm just, you know, dumbly answering. Um, yes. So, so the um, the essence um, here for for anybody designing um, stuff that they want other people to use that involves a social element is like, do you actually provide a way for anyone who's a natural tumbler out there to right. cultivate a community? Yes. Um, and actually, when you see um, this happen, um, here's, here's um, a proposition which actually I think applies even more broadly than just uh, limited to the, the internet. actually applies to offline products as well, which is if, if you approach your product um, not as uh, some, a commodity that you're trying to sell, but as a potential means for your user or customer to acquire more social capital from the network of people they respect. Basically, you know, the the most successful of these services, things like Twitter, things like Facebook, I think are successful not because they're great products, but because they allow their users to increase their social capital. You know, essentially, you know, get more respect from the people they care about or that, you know, the kind of community that they want to contribute to and to cult them to essentially tunnel. Um, and I think that's, that's a vastly missed point. And you can take almost, I'll take an example from, uh, I can take an example from like a non-traditional social web service, which would be, um, have you guys been using Y things? Have you ever seen these, these scales, that, you know, like body scales that you, you can measure your weight with? Do you know what I'm talking about? And, and they tweet it when they weigh you, yes. You, you step yeah, on the scales, so, they weigh you, and they tweet out your weight. So, so it's essentially it's a body scale. Yeah. So, so here, here's, here's an example of, an, I think, an interesting technology. So uh, 
a, a bond like, scale in itself is is totally boring, right? You just step on it and you find out you measure your weight. There's nothing social about that. But by connecting that over Wi-Fi to the internet and just automating, um, you know, they even let you know let you auto treat your weight. Um, but and they you know create a graph that you can share online about your you know your body weight as it develops over time. That actually turns this idea of your body weight into a social object, and you would be surprised at the number of people who have visited, you know, my wiping's, you know, my weight graph. Um, it turns out it's interesting. So, so here's here's I think that's a great example of you know how if you approach it from like the aspect of like how can I actually let people just cultivate a community around whatever the social object implied in my product is then I'm much more likely to, you know, get them on board. And, you know, here I am advertising buy things to everyone on the show, you know, without buy things having to do anything about it. So it's a classic, you know, um, kind of network marketing idea. And the, the, to, to, to us, because what you're essentially describing is what we think Tomaling is all about, is that people very often... I'm sorry to interrupt, but we're getting just too much noise from I don't know who's places is Debs or Kevin and Eries if you could just step away from the other people that would be great sorry Deb go ahead the essential essence of that is that people miss the point that it's about enabling others to to do what they already essentially want to do connect with their community gather favor within their community etc unfortunately way too many um, I'd say non-innovative or we've sort of set up in, in this post-social network sort of age you know uh, this a much more binary sort of way of people to connect to a thing, but not people to connect to each other, right? Yes, and which I, is a perfect segue into Malcolm Gladwell's article. Yes, exactly. So, right. Kevin Marks, why don't you give us a little crazy of Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's um, weak ties and activism, why the revolution will not be tweeted article in the New Yorker. So, so Malcolm McLevel wrote the article this week, and he, he did his usual thing of taking a very telling anecdote to illustrate the point, and then contrasting it with a bunch of fluffy generalizations. So he talked about the, um, the people who organized the lunch counter boycotts in the South in the 60s, and how their social connections were very strong. They went to school together. There was a huge hierarchical infrastructure there to support them, um, and then contrasted that with... Um, fluffy Twitter activism like change your background to green for the Iranian revolution or something like that um, and then use this as a, so clearly Twitter is crap at this stuff um, and what you actually need is traditional um, feet on the ground political organizations and um, hierarchical organization and so on and maybe it was this sort of strangely reactionary piece for Malcolm I thought well it wasn't strange to me in the sense that Malcolm Gladwell's really great at, you know, grabbing public attention of saying, I'm marking a trend, and it's always a way to get attention to go against something that we seem to think is growing. So that, that seemed to me to be predictable. But anyway, that's, um, no, I think that's a great description of it. And, of course, I think we disagree with Malcolm Gladwell, who we can try and get on the show if you'll That come. would be great. Um, he missed. He missed. The, he missed the point. You know, he went back to the old, you know, blogging as people gazing at their navels. <clears throat> Why do I care about what you have to say? No one's doing anything interesting on Twitter. Um, and he totally missed 
the and, and thinking that people are only connecting to each other on Twitter when they do. To me, what was really interesting, and I have to reread the article again, was oh, people on Twitter. It was very media. It was a very media approach to Twitter, and um, in the, in the in the one sense that he made this huge assumption that. Um, I'm only connecting via Twitter with people I don't know. That it is not an enhanced experience, perhaps, of my offline network. He separated the two very uniquely. I mean, that's what he, I read into it. He, he, I mean, Yuri, did, I don't know if you, did you get to read the piece? Yuri? Yes. yes, I have I have read the piece. So, uh, so it's I, almost, I thought, a bit of a, a sociological assumption. He just, I thought, took his yes. theoretical ideas about weak and strong ties. I mean, do, do you think they were... That they were accurate in this case, he's saying he assumes online ties are weak and that you can't make real social change with weak ties, but that old-fashioned uh, networking from the civil rights movement, which didn't totally make sense to me because I'm, he talked about that spreading very, very quickly, that lunch counter sit-ins happened overnight with many, many people, and I don't understand how that could have happened without a certain amount of weak ties also exactly. like, to, to grow that, but... Um, is, do you think that's accurate sociologically, that assumption he's making? Um, well, I think he, uh, Malcolm has a point in, in criticizing uh, the importance of especially Twitter in things like you know, the Iranian uh, would-be revolution, which I think is justified. However, like, you know, um, I remember back in the time we uh, were operating jaiku intensely having you know uh, i was we were watching some of this activity uh from the middle eastern users and you know clearly there were instances of of people because back you know essentially the sms is, is really what was the main motivator for a bunch of people who were using an organizing manner to be using things like jaiku and and then you know eventually twitter more um and i just from that experience of watching that happen, um, I disagree with Malcolm because it was clear that uh, a bunch of it was, was high risk. Um, they were doing it with public accounts specifically for the reason that it would be publicly uh, documented. And um, it was, and it involved, you know, uh, in certain cases, clear conflict. So, so, um, I think that the reality is that probably Malcolm is correct in you know saying that well perhaps the importance of these tools was was vastly overstated in Western media. Um, however, I think he takes the point too far by arguing that you know they they're absolutely basically saying that they're useless um, for for any form of real activism. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest the opposite. That in fact they're actually essential for anybody who, who wants to be doing a real activism today. It's just probably that they won't be the only thing you can use. You still need strong ties. You still need, you know, strong social connections. Right. And, but, but is it not, I mean, I think that's our point of kind of tumbling is that you can build strong ties uh, online and online that go offline ideally, but you need to really work at getting people to stay on connected in a deeper way than just like one comment, one another like an offhand moment, like, hey, I'm at this conference, good for, you know, here's my thought about the one thing you said. But there's also the fact that you can, 
uh, meet people online and then meet them in, 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 the, in real life. Um, and that is often a very, very powerful emotional connection. Um, that's one of the, I, I sort of call this the blog her effect because that was the place I, I saw right. this happened really strongly, which was there were all these people who'd been communicating online, had got to know each other, had a, a strong social sense of each other and, and what they were like, um, and then they got together in this place and, you know, half the first conference was people running up to each other and hugging each other and screaming, and or giggling, actually. The, the, what, what you see is the, the, there's this sort of pent-up giggling that you do, this sort of social laughter that you have, because laughter is basically a signal of trust and vulnerability. And you, right. you, it, you, The other thing I just want to say is, as a comic is laughter is a signal of rec- Recognition. Often a joke is funny because you're just saying something people know. So people already right. know each other. That's why they're laughing. Right. But there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful piece of, of, of sociology where the, the guy walks up to people with a camera and says, could you laugh for me? And they look at him and say, I can't laugh for you. And they look at their friend and laugh because this guy just said something ridiculous. Right. Um, because the laughing is this, is this, I'm comfortable being vulnerable with you. You know, it's, it's I'm closing my eyes and opening it, my mouth. Oh, yeah, the laughing is, is definitely a mode of connection. For, sh- for, for sure, one of the things that I look for in, in performances is when people will touch each when they laugh, they will touch each other sometimes. It's one of the... Can I, can I chime in on this? Um, Please. You know, actually, um, so here, here's a way of thinking about this, which may make sense. Um, actually, I did my master's thesis on... Or <laughs> um, was was about modeling. Um, I'll exp- I'll explain to you what I what I discovered. I was observing um, product development. Um, innov- I was trying to understand innovation, how it happened in in networks and organizations. And um, what I noticed was when I so what I was doing essentially was analyzing um, every uh, mode of communication in these in these groups that I could email. I was going to their meetings and videotaping them. I was getting their text messages. I was even recording some of their phone calls uh, on their consent to just try to understand how were, you know, distributed teams like uh, trying to innovate and come up with new products and product ideas. And what I found out was when I mapped all of this onto and, and made an analysis of it was that a pattern emerged that could predict when a product development product project was going to be successful and when it wasn't. And I call it, um, um, I found out there were two kinds of uh, ways of communicating. One was called what I started calling the knot, like with a K, like tying a knot together, which was essentially things like people meeting up and coming together in the hallway, on the sofas, going to a coffee shop, whatever, and intensely discussing, you know, kind of bonding over something, which is, I think, what what, what we were talking about when we are talking about strong ties in a you know, granovetter sense here. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, but it turns out that's not enough because you would have these you know, intense discussions where people are all, you know, and in the end they come up with some kind of you know, resolution perhaps and they all walk away, uh, but none of it spreads. Um, we have a little pocket of people who are convinced there about There you something. go. The Ding. The that, yes, okay. So that when there's very strong ties, spreading isn't occurring. But what happens is, so you absolutely need this in order to come up with anything new. You need people to bond this way. That's not enough. What you need also is what I started calling the pulse, which typically happened over electronic means, specifically over email in, in the companies, which was that somebody, usually, typically the, the whatever, the sort of like formal, informal chairperson of the meeting, would then walk to their computer or take out their BlackBerry and type out an email 
and send it to sometimes, you know, tens or even hundreds of recipients saying, here's what we just came up with. Here's the idea. Here's the resolution. Like, this is what we stand behind. Uh, and I call that the pulse. And when you put these into, on the final, when you had, um, you know, think, you know, uh, sort of things like a pattern where there was several knots uh, followed by a pulse, um, that where, you know, communication spread out very quickly, followed by, you know, knots in another place, um, which meant that the project was moving well ahead and progress was being made. But whenever there were issues where you would have to have meeting after meeting after meeting, nobody ever sent up this kind of call that picked up. Um, you know, those were a good predictors of that we're going to fail. Interesting. Does it make sense? Yeah, so so strong ties alone, that's sort of what some would call that creative, innovative moment where everyone goes, yes, aha, this is what we're going to do. That's a great idea. If you have lots of those, is that any different than saying, you know, the, the um, you know, in a, in a much more sort of simple, you know, the, that process that someone needs to capture and process and share with the rest of the group? I mean, isn't that, is, is that just project management 101 or is there something deeper going on there? Because I would assume, so you would assume that... that Kevin, go ahead. With my fair bit of experience with long-distance collaboration projects. Right. So, Deb, I think this is kind of an interesting thing to think about tumbling is the value of both kinds of ties. Yes. Um, I think tumbling, you know, can elucidate people knowing each other better, but it also does does a lot to spread. And, and I would think part of what it does to spread if it's done well is it incentivizes other people to be spreaders, not just themselves, which would make it quite different than Gladwell's idea that you're some kind of node as a connector and you do the spreading by yourself. Exactly. And I think, you know, we lost Yuri a little bit in that, and that's why I was sort of getting at with my statement slash question, uh, <laughs> which Jew, is Jew with, my, with, with my Jew question, which is... You know, we all, you know, the, the strong ties is required for sort of, I, I think, you know, really hashing out and coming up with new innovative ideas. Because you need a certain trust in order to, you know, agree, disagree, push at the edges. And right? you need it, you need it, for, I know in other environments, you need it to have really vulnerable statements. You need to sort of trust yes. and big open and that. That can really change a social dynamic in the room. Exactly. But all the spreading, you need to have, in like, say, comic relief or something that's going to get passed on, right? And, my, and, and the question I wanted to pose to Yuri is the pulse part, um, you know, are there successful pulses and non-successful pulses? Meaning, you know, the person who just summarizes what everyone does and shares it with the rest of the world. Like Scoble. Well, you know, I actually think he's a really good tumbler. So, so I think he's great. I'm just saying he does a ton of that. He does a ton of it. But so let's say that, a, let's say a group came up with a great idea of something new. And then you had a person in that group who is that great sort of Gladwellian kind of connector who summarizes and said that this is what we've come up with. But if they haven't led to your point in that articulation, if they haven't communicated an opening for others to add their ideas, share, make it happen, almost like a call to action, does it happen? Is or, it- or even in, in, to, to refer back to what Yuri was saying, socially or if you're making something or technology, helping have them have something that's going to add to their social capital, right? They're going to be the organizer in their campus. They're going to be the leader of their Facebook group, right? Right. Right. 
which is why do I want to jump in traditional media? I'm going to empower you to be in charge of something. It's a very different approach than you're all going to listen to me. Right. Right. It's very different to, um, you know, to summarize something and share it versus to summarize, share and say, we need your input to move this forward or take this to the next level. Otherwise the sort of that proverbial, like knots can be those proverbial in a different way in a business sense, all those knowledge networks that never went anywhere, you know, in, in companies where, um, I think we're dialing the, the guys back in, you know, where, um, uh, what, Oh, boy. Uh Oh, I think we lost them. I don't know. Where, um, you know, knowledge networks where there's only content and no reason to participate. Okay. Maybe they're sharing a mic. The boys are sharing a mic now. Two boys, one mic. Two boys, one mic. So I don't know if you guys heard, but I, I was curious here. We were talking because it's very sort of the essence of a bit of the tumbling construct. If on the pulse part of what you learned in what you um, in your thesis, uh, is there a qualitative difference in how those pulses are done? Does that make a difference? It, whether the the summarizing and sharing of that information enables new social objects to happen and make people feel that by connect, do you have to have a sense of, wow, if I share what was learned in this not strong tie area, I gain some benefit. So it's more than just summarizing. You broke up a little when you were describing that. So we were just curious. Yeah. So, so the basic hallmark of an effectively functioning, uh, um, you know, product innovation, innovation process was where you would really see uh, a pulse, not, not pulse pattern. So there would be um, a call for something. For instance, a problem was found, you know, the soft bug, uh, you know, there was an issue with, you know, user uptake or, you know, somebody had a brilliant new idea for something, something completely, totally new. And this would usually be uh, expressed in the form of a pulse. That's, you know, in one way or another, you know, tweets today are yes. examples of pulses that go out up to sometimes millions of ones. The follow-up, which is usually people agreeing to do face-to-face meetings, um, you kind of talk about it and bond over and kind of reach consensus. Um, and there could be, you know, any number of this could this could last over a couple of hours or or and but which was some cast message, you know. Maybe in a company, it was oftentimes in the form of some kind of a memo email saying, you know, here's what we've, we've decided, here's what we've accomplished, um, these are going to be our, ne- our next steps. And you would see this pattern kind of, if that naturally just was the way that communication happened, that's when things were moving forward. So it was the pattern of it that really made the huge difference. Yeah, so I'm assuming yeah, like, you know, today we have all kinds of analytics software uh, that's right. able to track people's communication. And what I'd be interested in doing is, is if somebody was, in a, for instance, in a corporate environment interested in, um, I, I'm sure that we could you know, make algorithms that would kind of track patterns and use them to, you know, all the product managers about like, well, it seems like, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing patterns that typically exemplify, you know, unhealthy projects or, or, you know, the other way around. So I don't know, you know, how far this analogy 
as you can definitely something there. So coming back to the original point of you know about uh, Malcolm's article, I have to say is that I think what we see happening in the sphere of social change, social activism, is actually necessarily that different from innovation in Silicon Valley. And um, so mm-hmm. what my data or what my findings suggest would be then that you know, indeed, you know, we will find the community. Um, this is really certain things which in which this you know bonding that Gladwell describes will need to be punctuated by you know tweets out or some kind of way of broadcasting to masses. Yeah, I mean, expect so, change so to actually isn't happen. what you're saying that essentially what Gladwell described? We just didn't have the same kind of tracking we now have, where you can see the tweets and you can see the Facebook patterns, and that in fact what happened in the '60s. A civil rights movement may have been the same, may have in fact had this mix you're talking about, sort of knots and pulses. Um, and there are maybe other reasons why, you know, that particular moment led to bigger change and other things. I mean, the other thing is that, you know, in effect, Gladwell was ignoring that because he talked about the churches, but he didn't really talk about the press. Um, and clearly the lunch counter mm. protest spread through the press as well as the churches. And he was ignoring that aspect of the weak ties. That was how they recruited those other people to join in. That was how they built up the groundswell. And that were, in effect, the policies that those ideas to spread there in, in, in Yuri's terminology. Um, but also, that you know, I think fundamentally there's this very static worldview that that was about your ties are either strong or weak. They it was, yeah, or, yeah, I was tweeting um, about yes. that. Don't, don't you think it's that Gladwell sees things in a binary fashion? That was, that was my point earlier. It's very on or off. You're either strong ties or weak ties. And that's the problem with the way most networks, social networks, tend to be built also. You either have a thousand friends or, you know, how many followers, like as if that's qualitatively important. Right? Right. That's... Uh, well, that's, but also, yeah, it, well, you know, you're either you're my friend or you're not. You know, there isn't a sort of soft edge friend category. Right. Um, because we hold those, those models in our heads. And when you try and build that, it doesn't work very well. Then there are some little structural things you're starting to see now where you have, um, well, there was a performative one like top friends that people built on top of um, MySpace right. and Facebook. But there are also the, um, if, you, if you look at the phone books now, going back to that analogy, you, you start having okay, here's, here's everyone and here's the people that um, I want on speed dial or the people that I want in my favorites drawer or the ones in my right. call history. Um, you're starting to construct, trying to construct these subsets from practical world actions um, as hints to you. Um, I think part of this, you know, but the other piece for me was the, the stuff we said before about a, a face associated with the message. Effectively, the face next to the message lets you do the work to decide whether this person is a strong or a weak tie or whatever nuance. That, you know, are they a strong tie tonight because they're in town and a weak tie most of the time because they're, you know, they're abroad in Finland or something? Right. It, it's the analogy when, we talk, when I've talked about that is, am I, are you friends with your mailman? <laughs> And, and people usually go, oh, oh wait, I, I don't know. Am I friends with my mailman or am I not friends? They're in my world. I say hello to them on a casual basis. Maybe if I see them once in a blue moon. If, or if it, you were in L.A. and you worked in the film business, yes. You'd be very friendly with your mailman. That's your best friend. Oh, my God, you're such good friends, the person it's, you had lunch with once last year. I mean, any time because everything's 
completely about network there. We're going to have right. to come near to a close. So it'd be nice to, to get some last thoughts from you, Erie. And, and it really, we'd love to have you back anytime, especially, and, and please let us know if there are startups you think would be good for us to look at, or we, we, we're trying to um, try to get the word out and to more startups, to try to have people approach things more socially um, and to think about tumbling in the role of, uh, of people in spreading this stuff. Why don't we try to close on this social activism note? Because, I mean, that's the most exciting, I think, probably application of all the stuff we're making is to have real world uh, change and the, the freedom we all hope will come from it. Um, what do you think would be the most helpful thing in the in the development of, of more social technology and media to help to help make that happen? Well, um, I, I'm going to say that my my hopes are are. I'm kind of looping back to the uh, starting point where we started from, which is, um, you know, the change that we're now seeing in more real-time, more mobile uh, technologies that what um, I don't think we've seen yet is um, good ways for people to be able to instantaneously bootstrap, um, you know, kind of groups that are, you, you know, concerned about a particular issue locally. This could be anything that involves, you know, any, you know, we're talking about civic activism. So it can be gender issues. It can be something locally, you know, something that needs to be fixed in the city infrastructure. Um, and kind of plugging into this, um, the different uh, data sources, we have a lot more structured data online about things like, you know, venues, events, uh, just about everything, even, you know, city operations, you know, municipal transport, um, you know, all kinds of things. And, and if we can plug this stuff uh, on a kind of on-demand basis so that it's kind of ready at hand um, mm -hmm. on your device as you are going about um, connecting with people who share your concerns locally, um, that's when we can build something really powerful. And that's why I think, you know, technologies and services like Foursquare, like Hunch, like, you know, stuff that I am building, um, are, are really exciting, and, and I frankly think like, you know, this is the kind of post-Twitter world that I'm expecting to emerge, which is actually much more about um, kind of um, ad hoc local stuff to involve a fixed set of followers and a single broadcaster, as we're kind of getting used to with Twitter currently. Something that's much more like these knots, you know, um, actually somebody who really understands this well, I think, is actually Ray Ozzy over at Microsoft. Um, yes. Because with Groove Network, the whole idea of Groove, which was Ray's uh, company that it did previous, prior to joining Microsoft, was, was that you know, it was an ad hoc network that emerged kind of peer, on a peer-to-peer -peer, peer basis. And this is really what I think now we're going to you know, sort of move into, where you know, it's something that's actually probably in between the strong and the weak ties, because they're sort of ad hoc strong ties, if one could use this this notion. I like that ad hoc strong ties. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because it's based on the context and the relevance of the moment. And I think that's a great phrase. I think we're going to write it down right now, ad hoc strong ties. And that is a very succinct reputation to everything Gladwell's. And not just him, that people with that style of understanding are trying to bring to this. Like they're missing a complete conception. And it, it just, to me, it reads like he doesn't Anyone who's been online and immersed in online world as long as the five of us have, I'm including engineer Rob Blatt here, uh, 
has experienced this. I mean, haven't you had a moment where stuff kind of came together around an issue? Somebody on Metafilter is trying to track down these women who are stuck with the Russian um, mafia or whatever. I mean, just like these little moments will come up and you'll get immersed into it. And you'll be very tightly bound to these people quite quickly because it came into your world in a particular moment and then it may, it may flow away again. And it's a more flow-oriented life, it sounds like you're talking about, Yuri, which is a yeah, much... I have one example that's, I like that, the, you know, women's stuff, the Russian mafia thing. Um, just, you know, from, like, for instance, from my own parents' um, academic research, which was, um, you know, ten, turns out that, like, whatever, like 80% of the uh, medical resources of, you know, the sort of medical um, infrastructure that's out there, you know, healthcare that's taking care of us, uh, is consumed by, you know, a small subset, like 20% of the patients who have multiple illnesses and, you know, who are sort of uh, perpetually sick for various reasons. Um, and, and so an example of these kind of what I mean by these ad hoc strong ties is like, you know, the, the issue is that there's no, if the various general practitioners and specialists who then end up treating these these people with multiple illnesses to actually kind of, nobody has a, full picture of what's going on with this human being for with the exception of the patient themselves and and now when you if if you could imagine you know these different doctors and specialists and you know nurses and this whole network being able to kind of instantaneously come together on an ad hoc basis when a problem appears the person you know it has an acute illness whatever needs to be treated um, and come on come together online maybe using their mobile devices to kind of um, participate in solving that particular problem, or maybe just you know lurking, and but nevertheless being aware of the decisions that are being made about them. Um, you know, then it's likely that their capacity to treat that person uh, further on down the line is going to be you know a lot better than it would have without them having that access to that information. Yeah, because it's like you have these little clouds of stuff around you of ideas and people, and that the interconnectedness of a person and an idea. Uh, or a piece of what we think of as data is is really is tight. It's tight because the caring is coming from the person, and the caring is based on what they know. Right. Well, Yuri, this has really been one of my favorite shows. I have to say, I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to come back and talk with us again. We have a really nice, fat, juicy connection without dropping any sound. Um. We've got to wrap up now, but how long are you going to be, be in the, the West Coast with us? Uh, I will be heading back to New York tomorrow, actually. Okay. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to miss you because I'll be heading to San Francisco Saturday, New York tomorrow. But um, I will be back again uh, next week. Temple Visioners, we've got some great guests coming up in the next few weeks. We've got um, uh, Tara Hunt. A founder of a co-founder of a startup that's just start showed a tech crunch disrupt, and uh, we've got uh, who else? Joe Boyd is going to be here hopefully in November. Um, who else? Remind me. We've got Heather Woodbury, really one of the leading, if not the leading, performance artists in the country now. We've who's got doing some amazing stuff online as well as live. We've got Josh Klein, who just wrote a book called Hacking Work, and we have. Uh, who is the next person we have? We have, we have Josh. We have a few other people. Dave, uh, Dave, Gray. Dave Gray. We have Dave Gray. With Sonny uh, Brown as well. So, and, and people that you'd like to see, please let us know. Halverson, uh, please let us know who you'd like to see. If there are things you want to talk about in the show, you could guess too. Believe me, 
I cannot wait, Yuri, speaking of technologies, I'd like to see here. I mean, we really want, I want video where I can pull everybody in so you guys can be in the show. It's about you. I mean, right now, the reason it's just the four of us talking is technically we're limited. But eventually, we want it to be, to, to be everyone together. So you guys, um, we really, it's been, it's been great to have you all here as always. Uh, Myers, hilarious as usual. And, and Todd joining us from, from Austin, really loving the show, which we appreciate. Best tumble thingy ever. There's so much competition for tumble thingies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's in a pretty, as always, uh, lots of insight and, and, and key. He's new to us, uh, new to me anyway. So I'm glad you were here and you could join us. Uh, Yuri, maybe you'll, you'll let us know if the other folks back in Helsinki that we should, um, we should pull okay. in. Are there any things you'd like, anything you'd like to let people know about or check out? Any recommendations or websites? Uh, we're going to be heading off with, I think, Kevin, you're coming along, too, to the pre-screening of the Social Network movie. So I think that's, like, so the top of my thing. For the, for the <laughs> so bunch it's, of entrepreneurs. So, so, so a, yep. a, bunch of, a bunch of early startup social web people watching the Social Network together. I, I'm so sad I'm on the other side of town tonight. I'd be very curious. <laughs> uh, we expect some good live tweeting, okay? Okay. So, <laughs> All right. so we'll, I can't, yeah, we'll have to check in on that next week. Everybody, this show is now on iTunes with some nicer design coming soon. But for the moment, please go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends um, as long as they'll like it. <laughs> Don't recommend it to someone who, who wouldn't be interested. Uh, pulse it on out there and please review the show. That would be really helpful for us if you'd, you'd say a couple things about what you like about it. Um, if indeed you like it. Yeah, you want Facebook place? <laughs> Todd <laughs> is this fun idea. <laughs> we love to get that. Yeah, yeah. Facebook we, places to check into what theater you see the social network at. Yeah, so, they, so Facebook can then they come don't confiscate back our phones. <laughs> yeah, <just laughs> That's great. We have the best chat room ever. Totally do. That's very funny. Deb and Kevin, anything you want to let anybody know about or promote or? Kev, you first. Anything? Um, nothing at the moment. No, I'm. I'm. I'm happy to um, let Deb's go next. Well, uh, the only thing that I've said uh, last week and this week is that Heather, Kevin, and I will be doing a live tumbling uh, in San Francisco at the first ever crowdsourcing conference, so that should be interesting, and we're hoping to do more live stuff in the future and lots of good stuff, so nothing that I specifically want to promote about me or anything, just keep on tumbling. And I'll be doing the next uh, Unpresenting Workshop in San Francisco on the 17th of October with probably... Some coming to Toronto uh, pretty soon and New York as well. So if you want to rec- uh, come to those or ask for one in your town, we shall teach you to live tunnel and change your presentation style to a large conversation with pulses and knots. I love this new vocabulary to me, new to me. Uh, let me know. That's unpresenting.com. So, yes, keep tumbling. Thanks so much, Yuri uh, Engstrom. Just a, a delight to have you here. And Kevin and Deb, as always, since we had a Same lot of background noise. Yeah, Bye, this, all. For stuff you missed, just heads up. Go the, the podcast for Steve Rosenbaum will be available tomorrow. And this one, hopefully, Kevin, will be available in the next couple of days. We've got local audio that we can that will be put into yeah, the Yeah, we podcast. might have to do some editing to join two copies together. So this may, may take us to the weekend. We won't have the audio drops when this is downloaded. So thanks for everyone listening on the podcast. And we'll see you back here next week. And we'd love to come to the UK. So just get in touch with me on... Facebook places. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Just comment up on the blog. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Good night. Have fun at the, at the show. I can't wait to read your tweets.